Hey guys, this is Landon, and you can find me at Hot Pelicans Takes on Twitter. And you are listening to the Deep South Podcast, bringing you your weekly Pelicans, Saints, and LSU Tigers coverage by fans for fans. What's going on, guys? And welcome to this edition of the Deep South Podcast. My name is Landon, and you can find me at Hot Pelicans Takes on Twitter. And we're continuing our Anthony Davis trade series this week. Today, we're going to be talking Brooklyn Nets, and I have on with me Carl and Brett from the Nets Pulse podcast. So, guys, how you doing tonight? Thanks for coming on. Doing great, Lana. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so um, yeah, so feel free to, before we start, just tell us a little about your, your podcast, what you're doing right now, and uh, plug anything you want if you want people to follow you on Twitter and, uh, and check out your work. And before we get into it, I'd love to say that I am over-caffeinated, underfed, and I've had way too much time to think about this, so I cannot wait to talk about trades that have less than 1% chance of happening. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Nets underscore Pulse. Uh, you can uh, check us out uh, the Pulse Podcast Network. Um, we're in the you know, Apple Store, Spotify, wherever your, your podcast perusing destination is yeah so um yeah so here at the deep south podcast we live on talking about trades that are probably not going to happen so with that being said let's talk about some trades that may or may not actually happen but first i want to talk about your brooklyn nets so y'all have been really showing out uh this year so um i don't i don't know your exact record right now i actually put out these uh, these podcast notes um, like a week ago or so when we were supposed to do this. But last time I checked, you guys are at 500 and the sixth place in the Eastern Conference. is um, What's your guys' record right now? Record so right now. Sitting at, oh, go ahead, Carl. Sorry. No, no, you got it. You got it. My bad. No, no worries. So, so we're, we're currently sitting at 34 and 33. So we are just one game over 500. Uh, we're in the seventh spot in the East right now. Uh, currently really tied in the in the, in the win-loss percentage with the Detroit Pistons, and we have a pivotal game coming up with them on the 11th to see who's going to hold that spot. And the significance of that 34 wins is going into the season, Vegas, more specifically Westgate, projected the Nets over under 32.5 wins, so we've already beaten that. So even though we're just a game over 500, it's been a still good season for the Nets. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I've really been impressed with what the Brooklyn Nets have been able to do this year. Because honestly, if I had to be honest, I was a little bit of a doubter too. Not necessarily that they wouldn't be good, um, but that they wouldn't be good this early. And and they've really been able to show out this season. So yeah, like you said, 34 and 33, they're actually sitting at the seventh seed right now in the Eastern Conference. So if the playoff pictures were um, were set in stone like they are right now, they would be taking on the Toronto Raptors and Kawhi Leonard in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. Um, yeah, so they kind of had that that run that propelled them into the um, into the playoff picture kind of right before the, the All-Star break. Right now they're currently sitting at 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games. Um, so what have you seen from this team this season? How have they been able to start competing for, for the playoffs and things so early in, in this kind of rebuild that they're in right now? So the biggest thing that you hear about uh, with the work that, you know, the GM Sean Marks and, and Coach Kenny Atkinson have done is the way that they've instilled a culture and, and gotten buy-in from kind of everybody on the roster. And I think you've seen that in the development and the sort of career leaders that, that we've seen this, this season out of D'Angelo Russell, um, but also some supporting players that have stepped up pretty big, like Joe Harris, Spencer Dinwiddie, um, the continued growth and development of Jared Allen. Uh, Rodion Skarooks, who's a second-round draft pick, um, stepping in and, and playing some high-quality minutes for him. So really just kind of across the board, it's a deep team, and you know, they've gotten big steps forward from, from just about everybody. Yeah, and I think... That culture and experience has really led to a lot of overperformance on some of the Nets' talent. So, for example, if you look at them, Carl and I were taking in some of the stats last week, were 17th in offense, 18th in defense across the entire NBA. Yet, 
were the waffle between the sixth and seventh spot in the Eastern Conference. And a lot of that is due to continuity. The players buying into the culture, being the system one year longer. They're all young players having another year to develop. And you've seen that in certain improvements like correcting our record in close games. The Nets have the worst record in games decided by five points or less last season. This year, they're at least around the middle mark there. And that has led to a market improvement us playing above our point differential record. Yeah, for sure. And I think a big part of that, too, is um, I see a lot of these kind of rebuilding teams that just have these young, fun, just springy teams that they can put out there with all the young guys that you guys have, which um, I feel like the Brooklyn Nets have a good mix of, um, of veterans and young guys. And I really like a lot of the veterans you have on your team as well, specifically like Rondé Hollis Jefferson, guys like that. So we can get a little bit into that as well. But, um, but I think the big thing for you guys, too, in these young teams is they've been able to play with pace and they've been able to really shoot the three ball. Um, I think the Brooklyn Nets are at the top of the league right now. I don't have the exact stats on me right now, but um, they have to be at the top of the league in terms of like uh, attempts per game. They just really are able to, uh, to chuck up the three ball and things like that. What have you seen from their play style with this young and springy team that you guys have that's really been able to help them uh, compete at a high level this season? So play style wise, oh. <laughs> so style wise, I think the Nets are you know really kind of similar to the Houston Rockets in the way that they're sort of patterned analytically. I mean, they take a lot of threes, um, you know, try to get the line as much as they can. Um, you know, don't take as many mid range shots. Although D'Angelo Russell has kind of changed Kenny Atkinson's opinion on that a little bit, just because he's been so effective in hitting them. Um, but definitely playing at a higher pace uh, and. and taking a ton of threes. I think the three-point variance is definitely one thing that defines this team, and it's allowed them to hang with just about anybody um, in the league, and it's also meant that, you know, there are some games where the shots don't fall, and, and they struggle no matter who they're playing. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that play style, I feel like, has been a big thing for them, and uh, kind of a, just the way that the NBA is going right now, how a lot of these young teams are adopting that fast-paced offense, and I see it, uh, you know, similar – Similarly to here in in New Orleans with Alvin Gentry's offense and how he uh, likes to play with pace and and um, shoot the three point shot and things like that have guys that can shoot that and um and the Brooklyn Nets have really been able to just embrace that this season and um you know something that's really helped them be competitive in the Eastern Conference but one of the big things and the big stories this year and I'm sure you'll have a lot of takes about this guy is D'Angelo Russell a guy that was. Um, kind of almost ousted by the the Los Angeles Lakers with uh, with comments about you know his maturity and things like that that he that he couldn't be a leader and um you know just couldn't take over a team and, and be that main guy in terms of running the offense and running a team and just being a team leader. Um, but he's really shown out for you guys this season. Um, he's averaging twenty point seven points, three point seven boards, six point seven assists. The only um kind of dark spot on his performance is that he hasn't been the most efficient guy in the world, only um, averaging around 43.5% from the field. But I, I think that I would just attest that to you know, him just taking the majority of the shots because he is the main guy for you guys on offense and, and kind of your go-to guy in terms of getting that offense going. But what have you guys seen from D'Angelo Russell in a, in a pretty much a breakout season for him? I'd say, first of all, the lower field goal percentage is something that's been pointed out by a lot of fans. And I think that attests to the style of play that D'Angelo Russell has because he's best almost in the LeBron-esque scenario where because he loves the ball in his hands, loves taking shots off the dribble, when you surround him with shooters and rim runners, that's when it really allows him to operate in space. And because early in the season, that took a lot of time to find their rhythm of playing with other ball-dominant guards, like a Spencer Dinwiddie or a Karen Slipper, the field goal percentage suffered, but then he also had to carry a much heavier offensive load when both Karis and Dinwiddie went down at respected points in the season, too. So that, that's been a learning curve, but on the positive side, the leadership that he's shown this season through a couple bumps and bruises, I mean, he wasn't even playing the end of some of our closest and most important games at the beginning of the season. He'd be on the bench, they'd 
opt for guys like Karras or Dinwiddie to close out the games in the guard slot. And yet he'd be on the bench cheering them on as they hit clutch shots, knowing that, well, I mean, if you really want to be the star player of a team, you're coming up on a contract, you want to get that big money in the summer, you're probably the guy that is going to want to be in those highlights, knocking down those clutch shots, uh, injecting ice water into his games as he likes to. And then throughout the season, he's earned that with some of his play and really picking up the offensive load as some of those guys has gone down. So the maturity level that he's shown with some of those uh, quote-unquote perceived character issues that he had with the Lakers early in his career have really been overcome. And he's this season, even though it's not talking about it, overcome a lot of uh, what could have been adversity in a much bigger spotlight. Yeah. yeah the one thing, I, just one quick thing I'd add on the, on the efficiency numbers, you know, I, I think that um, I wouldn't say that he's been inefficient necessarily scoring the ball. I think what he's struggled with specifically is getting to the rim and, you know, kind of the explosiveness in terms of going to the rim and also getting to the line. Um, there was a really good stat that I read uh, today um, from Kevin O'Connor at the Ringer um, who's saying that of players that have attempted at least 27 shots per 100 possessions in league history, Russell has posted the lowest free throw rate like ever. Um, so I think that's, that's definitely one thing and one area that he can improve and, and something that I think is kind of a final barrier for him to cross to go from all-star into an elite player. But all in all, I think, you know, both Brett and I, I think probably at the beginning of the season would, if you had, if you had asked us to pick one of Spencer Dinwiddie or, or D'Angelo Russell, I think we, we both probably would have taken Dinwiddie in all honesty, just kind of knowing what he was and, and where his ceiling was and where his floor was. But, um, D'Angelo's really, really evolved and kind of leveled himself up into a really, really nice player. Yeah, I knows that I blame his inability to get to the rim on the skinniest calves that I've ever seen in my life. I would recommend anybody watching a Nets game just look at D'Angelo Russell's legs. He will never be able to unsee this. I, I don't even think he has muscles in lower parts of his legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm, I've really been impressed with what he's been able to do this year. And personally, I think that, uh, I mean, I've been saying this for a while. I think that the Los Angeles Lakers really let their most promising young guys go. And, uh, and D'Angelo Russell and Julius Randle, two of the, you know, the most promising guys that they had drafted. And I always saw the talent with D'Angelo Russell, a second overall pick that just had all the talent and, and the ability in the world, especially on the offensive side of the ball and passing the ball too and he's really been able to do both of those things very effectively this year um I pulled up a couple of days ago when we were, were planning on recording this I pulled up his game log just from a while just to see the the consistency that that's there and it, and it really has been there uh for him he doesn't have many off nights um we talked a little bit about the the inefficiency and y'all kind of justified that and, and just kind of where which I'll think that comes from. But I, I just think, too, that's going to be mitigated a lot once he has more pieces around him and guys that can kind of take that offensive load away from him, and he'll really be able to flex his passing chops even more. But but uh, going from March 1st to before that, he um, against Charlotte, he had 22 points and 9 assists. Against Washington, 28 points, 3 rebounds, 7 assists. Against the Spurs, 23 points, 7 rebounds, 8 assists. And then um, before that, he had uh, against Charlotte again, he had 40 points and seven assists in that one. Just a guy that's just been so consistent, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, and it just seems like he really shows out for you guys every night. So it's been really impressive to watch. Um, and I think, like I said, I think a lot of that inefficiency um, stuff that people talk about is going to get mitigated a lot once he has a, um, a, you know, a true team around him. Uh, but I wanted to go. I pulled up some stats about the uh, the play style and things that we were talking about too, just to put some numbers to those things I was talking about. So in terms of attempts, the Brooklyn Nets are fifth in the league right now in three-point attempts per game, and they come out as sixth in terms of three-pointers made. Um, and they do find themselves in the top half of the league in percentage as well. They, they come out as 13th uh, in terms of three-point percentage, around 35.3%. Uh, of their threes made per game. So that kind of just attests to that, uh, that space and pace kind of style um, that they've been able to implement and just really shooting the three uh, with volume and being able to make a consistent, um, you know, a significant percentage of those threes. Um, but yeah, like we talked about, so I think that everything starts with D'Angelo Russell this year. Um, let's talk about some of the other guys though have that have been really good. So let's move to Karis Levert. Um, a guy that was really showing out at the beginning of the season. People were thinking this guy was going to be an all-star this year. 
Um, and I was really, really impressed. Uh, I watched a couple Nets games towards the beginning of the year just because I really liked their play style and things, and I just wanted to, to catch some of that. And, and that was one guy that just really caught my eye. Um, it was really unfortunate to see um, his injury when he went down, having to miss such so much time. And I believe he's come back recently um, for you guys. So I don't know, maybe y'all can speak a little bit to what you've seen from him when he's come back. But overall, just what have you seen from Karis LeVert this season and, and the steps that he's taken in his game? Right, you want to take this one? I can definitely take this one. Karis was our guy at the beginning of the season. Like you said, and like Carl said, if you would have had to choose Karis LeBert, Spencer Dinwiddie, or D'Angelo Russell at the beginning of the season, it would have been either Dinwiddie or LeBert. And then a few weeks into the season, it would 100% would have been LeBert. He was the guy that we had in at the end of every game. The ball was in his hands. He was hitting game-winning layups against the Knicks, the Nuggets, flexing even in the game that he got injured in it seemed like he was still he was still finding that it was almost like the end of the matrix where Neil realizes he has all these powers he was figuring out wow i can really get to the rim whatever i want i didn't realize that i could do this he was going in flying in for dunks and unfortunately i ended up working against him but he was the guy that was really growing before our eyes and he really exemplified the culture too i think spencer did but he had a quote after one of the games that everybody knows that karen is coach his favorite, which is pretty pretty shocking for a player to say that. And you don't really hear that uh, on other teams. But Karras was the guy that was finally breaking out and finally giving credence to the culture, the development, everything you've been hearing about the best system for the past few years. And, and I think just watching him come back, um, you know, it's been it's been interesting. I think you know it's been a little bit up and down since he's returned. Um, in particular, you know, his ability to finish around the rim, or, or at least his rate of finishing around the rim, seems, seems like it's taking a little while to come back. Um, but he he had a real big uh, step up kind of game yesterday. I, I I thought he looked like completely discombobulated, like he just shook um, through the about the first two and a half three quarters. Um, and then, you know, just toward the end of that third quarter and through the fourth, uh, he knocked down a couple of threes. Um, he started getting to the basket again and, and, and really looking, looking a lot better. I was, I was joking on Twitter that it looked like, you know, the Monstars had returned his powers from, uh, from Space Jam. Um, but it was good to, good to see him out there again. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and yeah, obviously he's going to have to get his basketball legs under him again and just, just get used to playing on the court and everything. But I'm, I'm really excited. Obviously he has a long way to go too. I mean, he's a really young guy. Um, so I'm really excited to see what he's going to be able to bring for you guys in, in the coming years. And, um, and maybe, you know, being another guy that's going to make that destination more, um, you know, more appealing to, to free agents and things like that. Just the, the young core that you guys have been able to put together, but let's talk about some of the the signings and the acquisitions and acquisitions and things that you guys have been able to um, to pull off in in the you know in the last year or so. So um so the first of those that was really big for you guys is drafting Jared Allen, uh, a guy that's been uh, the center for you guys. He's been a real presence down low, especially defensively, um, and as a rim protector, shot blocker, things like that, and can also. Um, you know, score down low pretty effectively as well. Um, I haven't been able to see him too much. So, so really, I just want to get your guys' perspective on him. What have you seen from Jared Allen as a young prospect? Paul, you want to start? I was, I was thinking you should take him since you're, since he's your Austin guy. Go Longhorns, baby. <laughs> I, I had the pleasure of watching Jared Allen play for the University of Texas the one season that he was there, and never did I imagine that he would be drafted by the Nets. I, I think that Jared is a, a great example of what the Nets have had to do to tread water over these past few years without their own first and second round draft picks and uh, without a lot of young talent on the team, showing that we can identify non-watery talent. and we can turn that into starting players in the NBA. And it, it, it's funny when you look at a guy like Jared, I was thinking about some of the knocks against him before he was chosen by the Nets, and one of them was, well, he likes to read. He builds his own computer. Does he actually care about basketball? And similar things to what you were hearing about a guy like uh, DeAndre Jordan. Uh, what's his motor? Does he care about what he's doing before he comes to the league? And 
I'm not saying that Jared Allen's as good as DeAndre Jordan is or, or ever will be, but he's been the light version of that for the Nets where he's the rim runner. Uh, I, I remember his first few games in the NBA, it looked like he had stone hands and I was really worried about the pick and now it seems like he catches any pass regardless of whether at his ankles or five feet above his head comes near him. He's taking dribbles, pump faking, trying to dunk on everybody. He's a guy that's not afraid of being dunked on himself and he loves challenging superstars that is our running list of stars in the NBA that he's blocked at the rim this season, including LeBron James, where you know I think LeBron has been blocked what five times in his career at the rim. So that was something that's put him on the map and he's even getting better at making outlet passes to the corner threes and I've been to only two next games this season but both games that I've been at Jared Allen has switched corner threes so I'm going to say that he's two for two 100% of the season and I won't take no for an answer <laughs> yeah but he's you know I think watching him improve just over the over the course of the last season and this is his second season in the league like has been has been really impressive. Um, just developing just developing all these little things like his his ability to facilitate the offense out of the high post. Um, the you know his ability when he gets the ball um, to finish on offense and, and dunk things is, is has been you know really impressive. I mean he's always been somebody who could throw down a lob, but I think he's getting a little bit more facile, a little bit more touch you know inside, which is which is really great. Um, you know I think he still has a ways to go as a screener, and I think he still has a ways to go. Um, as a rebounder, but you know he's he's done a really good job so far. And he's come a long way, and, and the Nets have kind of built this zone defense that they play an awful lot of, just kind of anchor around him as a shot blocker um, because I think they view him as you know a pretty good rim protector and, and deterrent when, when small guards get into the lane. Yeah, and um, and if he was involved in some sort of Anthony Davis deal, that's somebody that the Pelicans could really use. Um, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to criticize Anthony Davis too much on this podcast. I've done it a lot on on Twitter and other podcasts and things. So, but um, but as a guy that um, you know, was kind of really insistent on not playing the five for us, uh, even though he was a rim protector and you know he's known around the league as an elite defensive player. Um, you know, I I would just really like a guy like Jared Allen that just has that intensity, that motor, like you spoke on, and just somebody that can protect the rim is not afraid to challenge guys at the rim and just play up to the big, um, you know, post players that we have in the league, because that's something that Anthony Davis was not always able to do here in, um, in new Orleans. But yeah, so let me just give y'all, I know y'all, um, I don't know how high you are on this guy. I assume you are, but, um, but yeah, so if y'all want, let's just take this, um, give me a reasonable, um, like comparison for Jared Allen, so a reasonable comparison of what he could be in the league, and then give me an optimistic comparison of what you think he can turn into. Oh, man. Uh, so I'll say, first okay. of all, we don't have to spend too much time criticizing Anthony Davis. As we all agree, the real ulterior motive behind this podcast was to use Julius Randle and D'Angelo Russell as a vehicle to subtly jab the Lakers. So we can just continue down that path if we want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as, as, as far as Jared Allen goes, that that's a tough one. So I really, I really think you need to think about the players in the league that are destructive without the ball in their hands that are big. So I think like a best case scenario for him could be somebody similar to a Miles Turner, where folks are terrified of him at the rim they shoot a low field percentage when they're driving and eventually he learns to become a bit of a pick and pop threat on the perimeter and can draw opposing centers that aren't as nipple and as quick as him out to the three-point line and even knock down so I'd say, if I had to say best case scenario for him that's where I see him going like, Carl would you agree with that or do you think I'm crazy? I think it makes sense I mean I think they're a little bit different I think he's, he's a little bit more athletic he's got a little bit more sort of burst to him. He's, he's not quite as, like, he doesn't, he's not going to hold his ground as much um, as Turner. I'm trying to think of, like, who would be a, a sort of reasonable comparison. Uh, kind of drawing a blank on that one. Yeah, no problem. I know that was kind of a tough question. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think the Miles Turner one is, is pretty safe. 
um, is a pretty accurate one. I th- just in terms of the skill, I'm glad that y'all talked on uh, Jared Allen's skill and things like that, and not necessarily just on his athleticism and and, and rim protecting ability, because um, I haven't been able to see him enough to um, to assess that kind of stuff, you know. And and with you saying that he's kind of developing that outside game, that he does have soft touch uh, around the rim and things like that. That's something that I haven't been able to see um, enough of him to to really give an opinion on. So yeah, thank you for giving that perspective on that. Um, but yeah, so let's move on briefly to the other big uh, kind of acquisition that you guys made in free agency um, and a guy that's kind of playing more of a, um, a role for you guys and uh, not necessarily limited minutes, but um, a guy that's kind of just fitting into a role with other guys like D'Angelo Russell, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert getting the majority of those uh, those guard minutes. Uh, and that's Sh- uh, Shabazz Napier, um, a guy that um, you played really well for uh, for the Blazers before he signed that deal with you guys in free agency. What have you seen from him this season? So uh, let me let me caveat this first by just saying that I'm a huge Shabazz Napier fan, a big UConn fan. Um, so I'm definitely been a fan of his, you know, since before he was in the league. And I think he's really just brought. Um, he, he's kind of our eleventh guy right now, and, and Kenny, the way that Kenny Atkinson manages the rotation, it's, it's kind of you know, one through 10 and doesn't really matter what position you play. So really anytime anybody's been hurt, um, Napier's been able to come in. I think he's, he acts as a you know, steadying force on the offense. He's somebody that can help kind of take ball handling responsibilities off of either, you know, Dinwiddie or D'Angelo Russell or Charles LeVert. Um, you know, and I think he's been, he's kind of been plugged in as a, as a good leader on this team. He's another veteran kind of off the bench that's, that's really bought into the overall program. Um, and I think like he, you know, he kind of came, I've always viewed him sort of as a package with Ed Davis, um, who is another, you know, kind of under the radar acquisition that we had this off season. And, and Ed, I think has done a really good job, um, mentoring Jared Allen, picking up minutes in the games where, you know, the other team has a center that that's maybe a little bit beefier and is challenging Allen on the on the offensive glass. So I think both of those guys, along with uh, Brett's BC BC guy Jared Dudley, um, have all kind of helped instill a veteran presence um, and come in here on you know one year deals or one year with a player option in Chicago's case, um, and really just been been good assets to overall culture and, and also contributed on the floor as well. Yeah, um, I really liked watching him in the Blazers uniform specifically. I haven't been able to see too much of him in Brooklyn um, this year. And, and as you said, he's kind of um, you know more of a rotation guy for you guys and kind of comes in when people are, are injured and things like that. But he's a really solid player. Um, I've always liked him on every team that he's been on um, and just somebody that's just really productive in his time. So, um, so yeah, another underrated kind of signing. Uh, in free agency and just an underrated move in general that the Brooklyn Nets have made, which I feel like every move could be considered underrated with Brooklyn, just how well they've done uh, with this kind of rebuild. Cause I mean, face it, you guys got screwed by the Boston Celtics, uh, you know, not very long ago. And you guys have really made the best of that situation. Yeah. Billy King really had a hand in facilitating that screwing, but, uh, but it did, it did not leave us uh, in a good spot team building wise. Yeah, we, for we sure. We like to think of it like we screwed ourselves. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, yeah, got to take responsibility when it's <laughs> a, something that LeBron James cannot do is take responsibility. Um, yeah, uh, I'll just get. I'll just leave that comment there to simmer with you guys. But uh, but yeah, so um, that's gonna that's gonna do it for this first segment. So in the next segment, we're gonna talk about why the Brooklyn Nets may be interested in this deal and pursuing this deal. Um, the Nets as a potential free agent destination for other stars if they were to trade for Anthony Davis. Um, and then talk about some of the other young guys that may be involved in this deal. So we'll do that after the reset. I'm Ty Yeager, and I want to introduce you to the Rise Up Podcast community, a community for podcasters created by podcasters, dedicated to the promotion and growth of podcasts everywhere. Rise Up is not a network. There are no contracts and no control over your content. Just a vessel for you to spread the word of your work and connect with the fellow podcasters to collaborate, create, and promote. And guess what? It doesn't cost you a single cent to join the community. Join the Rise Up Podcast community today by visiting our website at bit.ly slash riseuppodcommunity and follow the community on Twitter at rupodcommunity. Again, that's bit.ly slash riseuppodcommunity and at rupodcommunity on Twitter. Come and join the community of podcasts and rise up with us. Rise Up Podcast Community.
All right, welcome back to the Deep South Podcast, where I'm talking with Carl and Brett from the Nets Pulse Podcast to talk about their team, the Brooklyn Nets, and an Anthony Davis trade that could potentially go down. Um, So let's start by talking about the Nets and why would they be interested in pursuing a deal like this? So I know that they haven't really been in this kind of rebuild period for very long. It's really surprising, and y'all kind of already talked about it a little bit, just how quick of a turnaround they've been able to make um, and how competent of a front office they've been able to to put together to make this happen, um, you know, and kind of just building on past uh, faults and things like that, which I hope the New Orleans Pelicans will be able to do, um, you know, getting a new GM and things like that. Hopefully that they'll be able to put a structure in place similar to the Brooklyn Nets and be able to do some of those things. But, um, but yeah, let me pose this question to you guys. Let's start with Carl on this one. Um, why do you think the Nets would be interested in pursuing this deal and, uh, and kind of taking that next step into being contenders in the East? So I think that, you know, when I've been thinking about the potential for this happening, I think there, there are a couple different scenarios that, that could come into play. Um, you know, for, for one thing, I think, you know, if you're, if you're keeping most of this nucleus together, I don't think that they would trade for, for Anthony Davis kind of just on its own. Um, but I do think that there are, you know, there's been some buzz about, um, you know, the Nets going after some of the bigger name free agents, um, whether that's Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or Jimmy Butler. And I think, you know, if one or two of those guys is in the fold, um, then, you know, trading for Davis makes, makes a whole lot of sense and, and you know, could, could be something that, that they would pull the trigger on. I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit unlikely, but, but I could absolutely see it happening, particularly, you know, if you're thinking about what might happen, you know, to the Celtics, if Kyrie were to leave, and, and yeah, I don't know that you guys would ever want to do business with the Lakers ever again. Uh, no. Nope. You know, makes sense. And um, so, you know, the, the Nets do offer a good deal of young players, and, and um, you know, I think, as you said, the rebuild on a little bit faster of a schedule than we had anticipated, and you know, might be time to, to go all in, I suppose. Yeah, what do you think, Brett? I, I, I would agree with Carl. I, I say that trading for Anthony Davis in a vacuum doesn't make us a championship contender right away. Unfortunately, with the talent core that we have, we're really going to need at least two star-level players to do that. But given the amount of collusion that goes on in this league and the intelligence of Barcelona and a lot of the moves that he's made, I will say that if a move like this does happen, we're almost guaranteed to sign a second star and there has been some sort of, some sort of chatter on the back end. And the reason the Nets would want to do a deal like this and probably end up overpaying for somebody like an Anthony Davis, especially with other teams out there like the Celtics, Lakers, maybe one of the other Raptors in there that can offer a better haul or at least bigger name players up until the season, is it allows us to skip a ton of steps. I mean, this is the first summer in five years where we're going in with our first and second round draft pick and cap flexibility and a decent young team there. Really, if you're looking at a true rebuild starting this year versus crawling out of a, a tunnel that didn't have any light in through some mud uh, or some other things that may or may not have been at the end of the Shawshank Redemption, we probably have another three to five years before we're truly a top four or maybe even a contender in the East if things continue to break in our favor. Finding a way to get a top five player by all catch-all metrics in the league will be an incredible way to accelerate our rebuild about three to five years and that's really the case behind that because all the draft picks all the waiting around and hitting doubles policy and trades uh, we may never ever get the chance to get a, a player like Anthony Davis doing those things yeah I definitely agree with you Brett when you talked about um you know how there may be some kind of unspoken agreement in place um, and something that like, okay, Kevin Durant said he wants to come to Brooklyn. So maybe let's, let's get Kevin Durant free agency and trade for AD or if, you know, if Kyrie Irving, um, said that that might be a potential destination for him. I definitely think it'd be more of a situation like that where, um, you know, several stars are saying, I want to, I want to go to Brooklyn and, and, and make a super team there or something like that. Um, but I agree that in a vacuum, if you're just thinking like, okay, with this team they have now, would they just trade for Anthony Davis and have these pieces around him? Um, because they'd be trading a lot of those young guys to New Orleans. So, I mean, you'd essentially have, you know, Anthony Davis, maybe one of your young players still, and then just the veterans that you have on the roster right now, and then just whoever you can uh, put around him with, um, you know, and also having to, um, to you know, potentially re-sign Anthony Davis if that was to happen in the near future. 
um, you know, maybe crippling your flexibility a tiny bit in that regard and being able to put some pieces around him. So I do agree with that assessment that you gave there. Um, but it's, yes. It's ironic because, because for the Nets, I think the, the one position that like is clearly in need of upgrade is the, is the four spot. And, you know, Rodion Spruce, who's a second round pick has, has stepped in and done a really, really good job. And I, you know, would anticipate that he'll continue to grow and, and, you know, be, be a great player over the next few years. But I think that's like the clear, like when they were talking about upgrading at the trade deadline and we were, you know, sniffing around, um, or I don't know, we were sniffing around, but Brett and I were talking about, uh, you know, they could pull off a trade for Nicole Miritich or Tobias Harris or, you know, somebody of that ilk that would, like, really help. So, on face value, it's like, oh, if he goes, that, that would thoroughly upgrade the four spot. But in order to complete that deal, all of a sudden, the four spot is not the only not the only hole that you have on the roster anymore because you have holes just about everywhere else. Yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, but in, in something... To think about too, though, if the, if this was something that was to happen, which uh, you know we've already talked about some of the reasons that may or may not happen, but um, he would fit your timeline pretty well. Being a player that's still only twenty five years old, um, have his, hasn't even really reached his prime yet in the league. So, uh, to be able to add um, you know, a twenty five year old superstar in Anthony Davis, um, to an already uh pretty pretty young group, and um, you know, obviously whoever you'd be able to keep in the in the deal, um. Yeah, that he would just really fit your guys' timeline really well. How do you feel about that? A, a team, you know, growing around a twenty-five year old superstar, in Anthony Davis, if this could happen. Well, I mean, I would say we both feel pretty amazing about that. Um, I, I was another thing that I wanted to point out too is the things the Nets have exemplified: culture, development, taking care of our own. The stuff that players around the league have started to notice outside of the New York market and say, hey, maybe that's a place I want to go, like a Jimmy Butler saying the Nets are on my trade list or a Kawhi Leonard being linked behind the scenes to the Nets. Trading for an Anthony Davis in a vacuum, unless you know the bigger things are coming, is tough because that shatters all those perceived notions of the Nets really, really caring about continuity, culture, and development and puts them more in a Danny Ainge light where you've got the trade Danny perception of I don't care who you are, what your contract is, what you've done for us. If I see something that's potentially better out there, if you better the franchise, I'm going to do that and I'm not going to take into account your family, your personal development personal life. So there is that perception to keep in mind when making trades like this. Now, is that something that we should really let us hold up for getting a player like Andy Davis? Probably not, but I also could see an old that's uh, organization up for doing that or at least giving a pause or hesitation given what they stand for. Yeah. I, mean, I guess the counter to that would be that, you know, even even if it sort of seems like it runs against the grain of, of their DNA right now. If, if the end goal that you're talking about is attracting other players to want to come there, I think Anthony Davis probably on his own does a pretty good job of that. Yeah, most definitely. I, I really appreciate what you talk about with, with the culture and things like that because that's um, at the end of the day, that's what people are looking for uh, right now. I know we talk a lot about um, the big market, you know, people, everybody wants to go play for, for the Celtics or Lakers or the Knicks and, and things like that. But I think that at the end of the day, um, these players are not as drawn to the big markets as they were in the past. The players can make their money um, wherever it is, especially with incentives like the Supermax and, and being able to be signed in the cap and make like, you know, 30, 35 percent of the cap and things like that. Um, on top of that, you get endorsements. These guys know how to to use social media to control narratives and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think these guys just really want a stable management and stable structure in place. Um, that is, like you said, about supporting their own uh, players and, you know, and, um, you know, just just treating them with that respect and, you know, just uh, kind of I think of the Kawhi Leonard situation in San Antonio, how they were kind of trying to rush him back from that injury and, and kind of almost uh, bully and intimidate him into into coming back with that team meeting they had and things like that. And, and that's just something that really turns players off to uh two teams like that they want they want that culture in place and they want to know that that um the team is looking out for their best interests and i would say that's more important nowadays than ever as the world has been unfortunately kind of the hard way with anthony davis's trade request contracts don't really mean anything once you sign a contract with the team 
that's almost where the sales pitch begins. It's now how do we keep this guy in the organization, keep this person happy so we don't all of a sudden have all these agent player-driven rumors going around and our franchise is getting media attention for everything but what's happening on the court. So having that foundation in place is really going to allow those contracts to mean something and to mean the player is going to be with the team for at least the first three, four years of however long that deal is. Yeah, we definitely found out the hard way and yeah, it's just it's just hard as um cuz you know, I know Pelicans fans know, um we all know the situation that um that we were we were put ourselves in. We know that Dell Dimps was not trying to do a tree rebuild and when we when we drafted Anthony Davis, it was kind of just win now, win now immediately trading all of our first round picks away and things like that, losing guys like Buddy Heald and Austin Rivers and Nerlens Noel and all the guys that we traded away. Uh, which, you know, they weren't all the greatest players in the world, but they're all, you know, competent rotation players and um, and guys that we weren't able to, to you know, kind of put around Anthony Davis and things like that. But, but yeah, that's a pretty good segue, though, into what I wanted to talk about next, which is the Brooklyn Nets as a potential free agent destination. Um, so you kind of hinted at it a little bit with guys like Kawhi Leonard and, um, you know, Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler, guys like that maybe, you know, hinting at the Brooklyn Nets being a destination for them. Um, obviously, Brooklyn is, a um, you know, a bigger market, certainly, um, you know, being in New York, obviously. But but they put this foundation in place. They have this structure in place from the top. Um, it seems like everybody's just really on the same page there in terms of what their vision is going forward and kind of just playing the long game. And it seems like players are really drawn to that. Um, so talk about how the Brooklyn Nets, maybe just they're, they're kind of a really underrated free agent destination right now. And uh, do you think guys are not talking about the Brooklyn Nets enough um, in getting big name free agents? Let's start with you, Brett. Uh, I, I would say that it's never been a better time to be a Nets fan that scours hoops like. It seems like every major free agent, there are multiple media clippings of whispers around whispers of players talking about the Nets organization being linked to New York. There are quotes in the mainstream media like ESPN. I, th- I think it was Stephen A. Smith that said, players have told me that they're interested in going to New York, but they didn't specifically say the Knicks. So I think there's a couple uh, anecdotes where Kevin Durant's old shooting coach from Oklahoma City Thunder is part of the Nets organization. Kyrie Irving grew up a Nets fan. Kawhi Leonard has mentioned that he wants to play in a big market where he can get a lot of that advertising money. New York was one of the things. Don't forget about Uncle Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle, Kawhi's Uncle Dennis is tied with Sean Marks. Don't 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 count out Uncle Dennis. <laughs> He's a influential person in his life, as we know. The Dennis system. Phantom Dennis. Oh, <laughs> oh man. I, and then what was all that? Jimmy Butler had the best on his destination of trades, which is the first time in, God, I don't even remember that. I, I don't think it's ever happened that somebody said, I wanted to be traded to the Nets. And that might be the first time ever that somebody said, yeah, I'd like to go there. It uh, happened again with Porzingis, too. Yeah, I'm still astounded that that deal even happened. That that one caught me off guard, I think, more than anything that's happened this season. Even the Anthony Davis trade request, I think I saw that coming. But um, I think I feel like I'm still kind of in denial that Porzingis is in Dallas. I don't know about you guys. Do you feel that way? I mean, especially because he's not playing right now. I do kind of just forget. Yes. About it and then I'm like, oh, right, he's coming back there. Yeah, most definitely. It definitely. Yeah, it caught me off guard. It was I just really didn't expect that. And um, you know, just the thought of Doncic and Porzingis. I mean, that that just sounds scary. I mean, as somebody who else is in the um, you know, in the the Western Conference, and you know how stacked the Western Conference has been in the in the near past, and in the now we're you know just putting all these uh, different interesting teams in the mix. That um, you know, as the Warriors kind of fall, we're gonna have these other teams that are gonna be um, kind of you know, moving up in, in the rankings and, and just building up uh, things in the Western Conference and being contenders. But yeah, so let's, so yeah, I definitely think that the Nets are an underrated free agent destination and, and kind of being slept on um, by a lot of people. But it's good that you, um they have been mentioned in national media and things like that and, and guys kind of hinting at Brooklyn being a destination for them. So that's been really good for you guys, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, let's move on a little bit to some of the young guys 
Um, so we already talked a bit about Jared Allen, but the other young guy you guys signed was uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, a guy that you recently re-signed to a, um, not necessarily a big money deal. I think it was actually a pretty team-friendly deal for you guys, um, but kind of signed him for the long term. I think it was a, um, was a four-year deal. Is that correct? What do you guys think about uh, Spencer Dinwiddie going forward? Sure. So, so Dinwiddie is on a he's on a, he's actually on a two plus one. So um, okay, a, the max we could have signed him for was four years, and we cut it out at um, two years um, with a with a third year that's a player option. And let me just I have this salary spreadsheet, and I can tell you it is like a thirty four thirty four million dollars basically over three years. Um, and you know, I think Dinwiddie is somebody that. You know, I know we've said this kind of over and over again, but you know, kind of classic. It's a net archetype. He's somebody that you know was in the G League. He'd been cut by Detroit. He'd been cut by Chicago. Um, it's actually, uh, ironically, the Nets um, discarded uh, Yogi Ferrell, um, who then immediately went to Dallas and started you know, putting up huge numbers um, to pick him up. So that was like one cause for consternation initially, but. After kind of milling around the back of the bench two years ago, he came in and really just started playing really, really well last year when, um, you know, obviously Jeremy Jeremy Lin was down and um, uh, D'Angelo Russell was hurt as well, sorry. Um, and, you know, he, he's somebody that I think has really improved his game. He's a great all-around guard. He's improved a ton as a three-point shooter. Um, he's really good, I think, at getting to the glass and, and playing within contact and drawing fouls and has a really good kind of stabilizing effect. And I don't know if he tops out as a, you know, this kind of starter or he's more of a six-man scorer coming off the bench, but he's a really, really solid NBA player, and I think he's going to continue playing in the league for a long time and, and making, you know, a good deal of money. Yeah. Um, his contract is team-friendly. I'll, I'll point out that he did take every single penny of what he could get offered from the Nets. I forget what the exact reasoning math behind it was, but there's there's always heated debate on Nets Twitter about whether or not the Nets culture and relationship with Nets management uh, forced uh, Cole Spencer to take less to stay with the Nets. And given how favorable his contract was, I mean, he could only go on up a certain percentage, and he we offered him the maximum amount that he could for an extension. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that was team-friendly about the way that he did it was that he, he chose not to go onto the open market. So he could have waited and been a free agent and potentially got more, but um, took the extension and, um, you know, that's that. Yeah, I really liked what um, – I got to watch a lot of him last year, and it was just crazy to see how he was able to step up like y'all talked about and, and fill in when, um, when y'all had so many – injuries and things like that and really just showed out for you guys and it, it, especially the on the offensive side of the ball it was just really impressive to see um you know just how he was able to stretch out his offense how to go beyond the arc um and just really show out on that side of the ball but um yeah so I really want to get into now so we've talked about a couple of the uh the young guys the signings you guys have had and everything so let's kind of get into some more technical things about what this deal would look like if it was to happen so I know that Spencer Dinwiddie and Jared Allen would definitely have to be in the deal um so let's talk a little bit about salary filler who you guys think would um have to be included in the deal to make this thing work and uh any other assets of note that you think the, the Pelicans would potentially want like how many first round picks and things like that you'd want to offer what do you think this deal would look like let's start with uh let's start with carl on this one sure so let me let me start with just a, a quick question so are you assuming that i, I think when, when i've been thinking about it and when i've read kind of things that have been speculated on almost everything will be about the um, my sort of assumption is that that would need to be the case in order to, to get this done. And I think that that, you know, both kind of for two reasons. Number one, um, I think it makes sense in terms of what, what you guys are getting back in terms of a, a player with a little bit of number five, but also something who's really not going to start 23 like a week ago. Um, so, you know, he's, he's very young in, in, in his learning curve. Um, if you feel like, we could put a package together without him. That would merit consideration. I'm sure that's something that the Nets would, would be interested in. Um, but, you know, when I'm looking at it, I, 
it's also one one last thing on him is like it's a little bit complicated because he's a restricted free agent going into this year. Um, did sort of extensive research on this today, and I believe the consensus is that you can do a sign and trade with a restricted free agent. Um, they would basically need to sign and get him to agree to an extension prior to the trade um, as part of that. So if we were center, centering it around him um, and doing that sign and trade model, I, I think that you know the biggest kind of salary match asset would be Alan Crabb, although he's obviously not on a great deal. Um, for next season with his player option at 18.5 million um, was, was we were thinking something in the neighborhood of Russell Allen crab. Um, and then, you know, maybe uh, like Jenna Musa, who's um, was our first round pick last year and has been developing in the G league. He's 19 um, years old and, and not, you know, hasn't played much in the NBA. I don't know if that's something that that is a starter for you guys or not. And then obviously throw in a pick or like one or two picks to to make things work. When previously, when I'd seen deals thrown around um, from the deadline, that was including um, probably two firsts and then also the Knicks second round pick, which the Nets have this year, which is obviously um, a very close to a first round pick in its own right. It's like the third. Is projected to be like the third pick in the second round. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think that's a good start. You actually reminded me. I was going to pose a question to you guys. Um, yeah, let's get Brett on this one. Do you think that the Nets match whatever um, you know anything and everything that um, that other teams might throw D'Angelo Russell's way? Do you think they you know they just match whatever it takes to bring him back? In a word, yes. I. I think before the season, before LeBert went down, before Spencer Dinwiddie went down, before we figured out that we could play D'Angelo Russell in crunch time, before he started putting up 40-point games and raising his assist numbers and slowly figuring out how to get to the line, I think that would have been in question. But now Russell has turned into the face of the Nets franchise and our most marketable player, um, regardless of whether you want to call him star. So I think there's a, a very, 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 very low chance, if not zero chance, that we will not match whatever offer somebody else decides to sign to. Yeah, do you agree with that, Carl? Absolutely. We, we, we talked about it back and forth and we were like, you know, wringing our hands over whether or not he was going to be an all-star. And does that mean we're going to have to match a max? And honestly, like now it's like, yeah, whatever. No problem. Okay, honestly, cool. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe, maybe even just give him the extension before somebody else does. Yeah. So, um, and, and I, think, I think you answered this earlier in the podcast, but I do want to ask you one question. How, how motivated do you think the Pelicans are to screw over the Lakers and whatever deal that they end up making here? Um, I, I honestly don't think that it's on the back of their minds. Um, I know that obviously, um, you know, the guy that was dealing with the majority of these trade deals around the deadline was Del Demps, who's now no longer the GM of the Pelicans. So now we have Danny Ferry kind of running the show and, um, you know, he's the interim right now. Yeah, he's the interim right now. So we may or may not even have the same GM, uh, this off season that's going to be dealing with these trade requests and things like that. So I think that'll... Um, you know, we'll kind of wait and see how that works out, but um, but I don't think that it'll be in the back of their minds. Um, really, I just don't think personally. Uh, I don't know if y'all saw the reports around the deadline with this, but the 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 Pelicans front office was pretty split. Uh, when it came to the Lakers and and their young guys, um, they had some people in the front office that really liked what Brandon Ingram and Kyle Kuzma and those guys bring, and then the other half of the front office, obviously, that was um that was not so impressed. Uh, with what they do and things like that. So more so than just screwing the Lakers, which I always love to see. Um, you know, I love to screw over the Lakers and, you know, I am a long and uh and you know Lakers hater. So so that that is no problem for me. But but yeah, I think that more so than uh screwing over the Lakers or anything like that, I just think, you know, it sounds simple and y'all probably know this already, but I think they just want the best deal possible. They just want the best return for Anthony Davis. Um they want to be set up um, in the best way possible going forward and, and setting up that structure and that um, that culture that we already talked about that the Brooklyn Nets have been able to do so well. Um, I think just putting out a team that's young, that has some, uh, you know, a lot of potential uh, to be really good in the, in the coming years and, and to grow together and just to establish a culture that we haven't really been able to have in New Orleans for a very long time. 
Uh, I think that that's going to be at the forefront of what they do. I think, yeah, I think a deal with the Nets may have died with Del Dempsey's tenure with the Pelicans. Because if you think about it, what better way to scorn the Lakers than to not only refuse four first-round picks from them plus their entire young core, saying it's not good enough, but then turning around and trading for D'Angelo Russell, saying, yep, this is the player that we wanted, this is the type of young talent you couldn't provide to us Lakers. I mean, that would just be the cherry on top. Oh yeah, that would <laughs> that would be rich. I would I would love to see that. Just just because I've always been saying too, I've I've just been a long time, uh, you know, kind of proprietor of of D'Angelo Russell being one of the most promising guys they've had. So yeah, that would be pretty pretty funny to kind of spite them in that way. But we we got a we got a couple more minutes here. Let's try to wrap it up a little bit. But um, the last thing I wanted to say is so if we were talking about like we were discussing earlier if they have some sort of unspoken deal that um another free agent uh, is going to come to Brooklyn maybe like a Kevin Durant a Kawhi Leonard and things like that and they do want to go ahead and just throw the house at New Orleans for Anthony Davis do you think there's any way that we could see a deal uh, offered that would include all three of D'Angelo Russell, Spencer Dinwiddie and Jared Allen in the same deal do you think that they would ever consider doing that I think it's possible. I think I don't. I don't think you'll get Russell Dinwiddie, Lavert, and Allen. Um, but I could see three. I mean, and I think if it's going to be three of the four, one of them has to be Allen. I think they'll trade all three guards. Um, I, I, I think you could see Russell, Lavert, Allen, and and the Nets keep Dinwiddie potentially. Um, I think it would just depend on on who's coming in. I mean, obviously, like Kyrie Irving is coming in, and I suppose. You know, maybe that that makes Russell and, and Dinwiddie more expendable. I think one um, not to not to change the subject, but one underrated kind of conspiracy scenario that, that you know we didn't bring up last time would be uh, if the Pelicans did hire Trajan Langdon as their GM. You know, that could open a channel with Brooklyn, where you know if if was signing max free agents now all of a sudden they have a, a cozy relationship with the with the new pelicans gm i don't know if that facilitates a deal a little bit more without necessarily the lakers having to be a thought of them yeah so let's throw that in that'll be the uh the last little tidbit we have we got about um minute and a half two minutes here but um we did get a uh, a comment from somebody on twitter at bhenny 504 shout out to him um and he said to ask you guys about your assistant gm uh, Trajan Langdon and because he may be a candidate for us next year so um so just briefly um one of you maybe maybe Carl just kind of wrap it up with this um what have you seen from him in terms of establishing that culture do you think he'd be a nice candidate for the Pelicans to pursue sure so I think what we've seen from him is you know he's been Sean Mark's right-hand man and in establishing the culture he's also been somebody that um they've had work with the Long Island Nets of the G League to kind of extend the culture from the NBA team to the G League so I think he definitely has experience in, in that arena um he's also you know he, he started his front office work as a Spurs scout um and he played for a while on uh, CSK in Moscow so he's got a ton of um, you know, connections in, in Europe, in the EuroLeague. He works really closely with um, the Nets director of scouting over there. He, he supposedly um, was very instrumental in finding uh, Rodion Scarusa. We mentioned a couple times, but, you know, kind of a crazy story where this kid was brought into the Steve Barcelona, but basketball version of Barcelona is, um, and basically got stashed on their B team because their coach didn't want him to go to the NBA, but Trajan Langdon had seen him working out and seen him play and, you know, kind of kept it under wraps and they chose him in the second round. So, um, you know, I think he's been fantastic. It's a little hard to sort of tell where Sean Marks begins and, and Trajan Langdon ends, I guess, because as a front office, the Nets are pretty buttoned up and don't leak, uh, unlike you know some other teams you may have uh, dealt with on attempted transactions recently. Um, but you know he's he's been fantastic. Although I will say, as I said when I was talking about Shabazz Napier, as a UConn fan, I'll always remember Trajan Langdon for falling down on the floor in the last seconds of the 1999 national championship game. So that's that's that. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of the Deep South Podcast. 
Um, we're wrapping up this episode, another episode of our Anthony Davis trade series. This time we're covering the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, Carl and Brett from the Nets Pulse podcast came on and talked with me about this. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, go ahead and let people know where they can find your stuff, where they can find your podcast once again. Um, and just once again, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciated your perspective on your team. Well, thanks so much for having us. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Nets underscore Pulse. You can find us uh, on the iTunes store, on Spotify, on Stitcher. Um, I don't know if we have a SoundCloud yet, but we should probably get one of those. Anywhere anywhere you get your podcast, Nets Pulse, search, search for Nets Pulse. Yeah, great. Well, um, I really appreciated it again for you guys coming on. And um, have a good night, Pelicans fans.